This is the Hymn Publications Podcast. I'm Chad Harrington. This is class four of eight in our mini-series on spiritual formation, and it was recorded live during a class at Harpeth Christian Church, which is located in Franklin, Tennessee. Today we discuss the spiritual discipline of rest, which is sometimes called a Christian Sabbath. So here's the question that we deal with. Should we obey the Sabbath as Christians? And what's different for us if we should? What does the Bible say about it in the Old Testament and in the New? And what does Jesus actually do about it? And if we should obey it, what does it look like today, practically speaking? Does it look like setting aside a day of rest? Listen in to find out answers to these questions. And if you want class notes and exercises mentioned in this episode, email us by finding our contact info at himpublications.com about. Now for the class session. Good morning. This is Digging Deep Spiritual Formation. Welcome to class session four. I wanted to start out by asking you, how did it go with the silence and solitude worksheets? Raise your hand if you did them. Okay. Raise your hand if you don't have them. All right. How did it go for those of you who did it? And if you're on Facebook, comment and say, did it or check or something like I did it or comment and say, didn't get to it yet. I want to hear from you. How'd it go? Okay. Thank you, Jim. He said that it's good to commit to something, put it on paper, and you actually planned out a retreat. Maybe one or two other people. Just how did it go with the silence and solitude worksheets? You guys did great if you're that silent about it. Um, how about online? Yes, we have someone who planned a retreat. Boom! Cool. That's good. So this is the spiritual formation class, and we're talking about Sabbath. We're talking about rest today. And so far, we've covered why spiritual formation matters, what it is, some of the most common barriers to spiritual formation, how it works. And then we talked about silence and solitude last week. Today is rest, which is, we just had Labor Day this week, so today is rest. And then after that, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about study, prayer, and fasting. So those are three different weeks. And then we're going to do one week just on service, submission, and confession. Sounds kind of intense, but this is going to be fun. So we've got four more weeks after today. And I just want to say that we're not going to cover all the disciplines that we could talk about. In fact, we're going to leave out some important ones like guidance, secrecy, frugality, chastity, fellowship, and worship. Uh, Although we'll sort of touch on some of those. So I, I wanted to just state that we're focused in this class on just a few. And the ones that I chose, I chose because I think that they're the most important for us right now in this time and place. Um, so that's that. So I want to ask this question. What is the goal of spiritual formation? We've talked about it a little bit, but I want to tell you a little story. Um, based on that question, if I were to ask you, what's the pinnacle of Christian formation? You know, or maybe you call it discipleship. What would you name it to be? Like, what are we even aiming for? How would we know it is accomplished? Just with anything else in life, you kind of need to know what is, what does the end goal look like? I remember Doug Marks, in my first year of college, challenged my beliefs on this. It was the fall of 2004, and I was taking a teaching ministry of the church class. And so he had us all divide up into groups in the class based on our interest in ministry areas. So there was like the children's ministry group, whoever wanted to... 
potentially go into children's ministry. We're all, you know, freshmen in college, so it's like we're figuring out what we want. Um, so, and then there was like the youth ministry. So I chose the young adults ministry. So we went off as a group, at different groups. And the goal of that, this exercise of dividing up into groups that day was to f- basically discuss and decide what is the goal of the teaching ministry of the church? And so for us, you know, it's the same kind of thing. What's the goal of discipleship? What's the goal of spiritual formation? If you were to sort of chart out the path, where is the landing pad? What does that look like? And how would you be able to tell? Because I think if you're thinking about your own spiritual formation, it's like, well, well, when do I get there? And when I say get there, I don't mean like you've arrived and you're flawless now, but hopefully you go from less formed to more formed. And hopefully the end result is a mature person. Otherwise, this is all just really terrible. It's all these teachings and instructions, but you're never going to get there. So I don't mean get there like you arrive, you know what I mean? But I mean get there in the sense of you're mature. We should be able at some point to say that because of God's grace and mercy in Christ, powered by the Holy Spirit, I'm mature. If people can't say that, then what are we doing? You know what I mean? So I want to let that question hang for a little bit. We'll come back to it at the end. And I want to tell you about the 21-day challenge. So this is something that is in the class notes for today. If you're online, you can download it. You can download the PDF. If you're in person, it was uh, at the table at the entry for you to pick up. So it's the class notes. Um, but then there's a the title will be called the 21-day challenge. Uh, Angela, it's actually uh, right here at this first table. Uh, uh, the first table Brianne's at, sitting at it. Angela? Brianne's sitting at the table that has the sheets. Yeah. Um, no, that's, I was lazy today and I didn't put them on people's chairs. I was like, they can get them. Fourth week, the 21-day challenge. So this is where you select a discipline, a micro-discipline you could call it, and you do it for 21 days straight. And so it's a challenge because this is not easy. But it's also going to be a benefit to you um, because... I think one of the big challenges is following through with the things we want, right? We've talked about vision, intention, and means. We have a lot of vision, I think, we're cultivating that. A lot of us intend to do the right thing, but we need the means. So I want us to go ahead and start moving toward action, right? So there's a lot of learning going on. There's a lot of planning and like answering questions, but I want us to go ahead and move toward action. Because I think that it's really important to just try stuff, to learn by doing. And I think by jumping in and going kind of deep, it can be really helpful. But I also don't want you to get overwhelmed. So the 21 day challenge is you literally pick only one discipline and you do that every day for 21 days. This is a fun experiment because you're gonna get to know yourself better. And I think self-knowledge is actually really important because you might find Like, I am way less disciplined than I thought I was, you know? Or you might be like, wow, I was able to do it exactly as I wanted to. Praise God. This is exciting. Let's keep going. Whatever you learn about yourself in the next 21 days, I think it'll be helpful. 
and I'm just going to liberate you right now, uh, you don't have to go further or do more than, than you want to. You can do exactly and only what you want to for the next 21 days. Now, you can obviously do more disciplines than just one, but pick one that you'll commit to to do every day for 21 days. And I mean kind of a micro-discipline. So you might meditate for 10 minutes a day, or maybe two minutes a day. You might pray the Our Father prayer every single day for 21 days. It takes like 30 seconds max. Whatever it is. Or you might say, hey, look, I want to read a chapter of the Bible every day, or I want to, whatever it is, pick it today and start today. And then just do it for 21 days. It's a 21-day challenge. And I want you to pick, uh, there's a worksheet to help you do that. So you pick one. And then the second part of the worksheet is you write down the minimum measurable parameters. There's the overachievers out there who want to like kind of overinflate what you think you should do. You can go beyond it. Just write the minimum where you can know at the end of it, I was able to do this. I did it. So for me, when I work out, it's a 15 minute bike ride on my stationary bike. Because the days where I'm like, I don't know if I can do it. I'm like, it's just 15 minutes. I can do that. But sometimes I'll go a little longer. The minimum measurable parameters. This is totally up to you. It could be whatever you want it to be. So that's the 21 day challenge. Who's up for it? Who, who's in? I'm going to do it online. Who's in? Just go ahead and commit. No, you don't have to, but you should. You totally should. This is a great, you're taking the class. You might as well do this. All right. Any responses online? You just shout it out, Brian. Um, we're going to go ahead and move on to, I want to talk about this week's other assignment, which is the rest worksheet. And so it has the word rest at the top of it. And this is designed to help you answer the question, what exactly are your plans for regular and intentional rest from work in order to focus on God? So I want you to essentially just name a specific day of the week, a precise time frame, and what you plan to do on that day of the week. A lot of people call this the Sabbath. Um, as Christians, you know, we observe rest, but not Sabbath as the Jews did precisely. We'll get into that. But we're calling this the day of rest. And consider as you do this how you can get, connect with God's people, God's word, and God himself in prayer. This is similar to silence and solitude, but it's not alone. In fact, it's the opposite. It's with people. The nuance here is that you're not working. So take that worksheet. Let me tell you about my experience with Sabbath and with resting. Because I want to give you a little bit of background of where I'm coming from so that as I teach and as we go through Scripture, you've got some context for how I've landed where I've landed. Um, so in the fall of 2008, I was one of two preachers at Conway Christian Church in Conway, Missouri. And we would drive 100 miles each way to preach there on the weekends. So I would preach one week and my friend Jordan would preach the other week. And we did this series on the disciplines. So we preached through the different disciplines and I was assigned Sabbath. I don't know if I chose it or if it sat on my lap, but I didn't know anything about the Sabbath, truth be told. I hadn't really learned about it biblically and I didn't know how to do it 
So I bought a book as a senior in college as a crash course on the Sabbath. And I just read a book by Mark Buchanan called Your God is Too Safe. And so I, somehow I found his book about the Sabbath, um, The Rest of God. It's called Restoring Your Soul by Restoring Sabbath. I read this in 2008, over a decade ago. And ever since then, I've been practicing a day of rest every week because God used this book to change my life. I preached on it. And I, I was changed by my own preparation and preaching. And I'll tell you what, it has been one of the most significant spiritual disciplines that I have incorporated over the last 10 plus years. And so when I talk about Sabbath with you, when I talk about a day of rest, it comes from this experience that I've had over the last 10 plus years where God has really used it to restore my soul week after week after week. And now that I'm married, I've incorporated it with my family and even with my T group of guys at the church, my transformed group with the guys at the church. We actually have started to learn how to do this together, not just one person, not just a family, but families together. And let me tell you what it looks like for us to paint the picture a little bit so you know a little bit about my experiences. And by the way, there's a lot of different ways to do this. But I'll just tell you my experiences. Then we'll get into Scripture to look at what God's heart is about this. And we'll look at what Jesus says about it. And we'll walk away with a, a plan. Um, and so the first thing that we do is we set aside a day to stop from our regular work in our family. So for me, it means no email, no computer, no writing for work, although I still journal, no editing, no client calls. And then, you know, there's housework too. We, we cease from doing that work, which means that we try and prepare all of our food. We try and get all the chores done, wash all the dishes, have all the laundry put away or done or on pause. Anything that's not done for us by sundown Saturday can wait until sundown Sunday. But it also means for us, so that's kind of the negative, that's the ceasing side. But it also means that we do focus or try and focus on God's people, God's word, and God himself through prayer on Sundays. And so we try and intentionally connect with people for lunch. We linger before and after church to connect with God's people not only going to the service, but also trying to connect with people relationally before and after the service. And we try and make time to pray and to read scripture and to talk about God's word together on Sundays. Some days better than others, if you know what I mean. I don't know if, if you have a day like that already, but that's what it looks like for us. And let me tell you the immense blessing that it has been. It's been so sweet for me and my family that I literally can't imagine what my life would be like without having this discipline incorporated into our structure and our schedule for life. You know, I'm kind of a workaholic by tendency. So by establishing a firm practice with clear boundaries and set days, it encourages me to let God be God and rest in his sovereignty and to not focus on all the things that I can accomplish, but to remember what God has accomplished and to just saturate in that, to meditate on that. I often think about with Jesus, how 
did Jesus Christ memorize so much scripture? And we know from Luke 2 that he grew in wisdom and stature. So, and, and we know from Hebrews that he learned obedience by the things he suffered. So Christ grew in ways. Well, how did he memorize so much scripture? Obviously, his divine nature was perfect. But there were spiritual habits that Jesus incorporated that we've been talking about and will continue to talk about. And one of them was he went to the synagogue on Saturdays. And I've often wondered, like, well, like I said, how did he memorize it? And I think that he went deep into a day of rest where he connected with God's people, God's word, and God himself through prayer. And I believe that he just saturated himself in the word. You know, they had scrolls in those days. And then he would meditate on it. He'd talk about it. He'd think about it. Because he didn't have a personal Bible like we do. And, and think about all the other Jews, all of our other brothers and sisters from of old, right? Who, um, from, from the Old Covenant, you know, God saved some of them. What did they do on the Sabbath? I think that that helps inform us because it was God himself who instituted this discipline. And so my goal today, from my experiences and my study, is that I want to convince you to restore a day of rest in your life by taking an entire continuous 24-hour period each week, ideally Sunday, to stop working and to do three things at a minimum. Gather together, pray together, and talk about God's word together with God's people. My goal is that everyone would make a decision to do that. Now, let me qualify this. It's really important that this point is clear. This is my personal recommendation. This is not the official teaching of the church, like our church. It's not something that you're mandated to do by anybody. I'm saying... Personally, I would love for everyone to do this because it's been so life-giving for me and because I think there's a strong scriptural precedent for rest in general. And this is where I've landed in my life. And so there's a lot of different ways to practice rest or what people will call a Christian Sabbath. And there's a lot of freedom, tons of freedom, grace, and space to figure it out. It's really important. But I want to make the case for a set 24-hour period day of rest, just so that you can take that into account as you make decisions in your life. I want to make the case clear for you um, and hopefully compelling. It's not required to be saved to do this. It's a gift that comes with our salvation to be able to rest in a uniquely Christian way. And just like there aren't laws that legislate the details about fasting, right? It's not like you have to fast if you're a Christian. It's like, no, you get to fast because you can connect with God. It's the same thing with giving to the poor, service, or other disciplines. There's not these like strict, detailed regimens in Christ. These are opportunities. These are means of grace where we experience God. And so if you're, you know, if you're kind of like doing this, like, kind of standing back like, Chad, this is, this is getting a little bit worksy. It's like, no, 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 that, please, please don't miss this. This is a gift. I want to help you receive it. And so what we need to do is understand God's heart behind it originally and see what still stands 
because of the new covenant in Christ. And so here's my summary of the argument that I'm going to lay out. It was a command in the Old Testament that was fulfilled and given its full purpose by Jesus in the new covenant. It has many benefits for us individually, for our families and our churches. And it's a general practice embraced by the early church and Christians throughout the millennia to set aside a day from the others to rest and to seek God with God's people. So that's essentially my argument. So I want to also be clear when I define what is a Christian Sabbath. You know, to be really clear, the word Sabbath actually in Hebrew comes from Hebrew and it means Saturday. So it's a little tricky. Um, and so when I talk about the Christian Sabbath, that's not really a term. Um, it's probably better to call it a day of rest, but I'll use the word Sabbath just for shorthand and because we're a little familiar with that already. Um, and I'll use those interchangeably, Sabbath and day of rest. But what I mean by it is the baptized version that is for the liberated disciples of Jesus, okay? So I just wanted to qualify that a little bit. Um, And it's not Saturday for us, it's Sunday. And that's really clear in in the New Testament and in church history, that no longer do we rest on Saturday, but on Sunday. And, you know, it's really just three things. People always ask, what do you do on the Sabbath? And, and so I sat down, I read through Acts, and I just said, well, what did the, the Jews in the time of Jesus do as sort of a baseline? Because we know that that's what Jesus would have done, and that's what the early Jewish Christians would have done as a starting place, not as the landing place, because there were a lot of legalistic tendencies in the Jewish Sabbath. But they just did three things, and I think that the basic three things that they did are things that we can also do, and they're not, you know, legalistic in the rabbinical traditions. And this is what they were. They gathered together. Synagogue means gathering together. So they gathered together with the people. They debated the Torah, which was their Bible at the time. And they prayed together. So it's like, what do we do on the Sabbath? Number one, you stop what your regular work is. Number two, you actively do these things. Here's what it's not. It's not a vacation. It's not an American day of rest, okay? Where where there's no God in it. It's not just a time to veg. Just it's it's not me time. It's not sleeping in, it's not a day off. These can all be a part of a day of rest for you, a part of Sabbath, but they don't get at the heart of what Sabbath is. Okay? So don't confuse the two. Those are American shadows of God's heart about rest. We're going to talk about the Jewish shadows that were all fulfilled in Christ, right? So what we want when we do those things can find their deeper fulfillment in Christ. Now, I know what you're thinking. We don't have time for this because we're so busy with our schedules and commitments, so it seems impossible. Chad, you don't understand how much I have to do. You don't understand my commitments. Okay, let's talk about that. Also, you might be like, Chad, I know you're talking a lot about this, the Old Testaments, and we don't have to do this, right? It's the one of the Ten Commandments that we don't have to think about, right? Or maybe you're afraid of the legalism thing, and when I say, you know, 
a set 24 hour period, just all these red flags are going off and you're like, ah, and you just want to run, right? These are some barriers that might come to you and we're going to deal with these as best we can. And then you might also be thinking, look, I know I need to rest. I know I'm worn out, but I don't know how to think about this as a Christian. What's a good biblical basis for this? And then you're also, I think we're also up against the barriers of workaholism. I mean, I mentioned that for myself, but this term was coined in 1971 by a minister and a psychologist. His name was Wayne Oates, and he described workaholism as the compulsion and the uncontrollable need to work incessantly. And there are studies that reveal Americans do work far more than other countries, uh, far more than other countries that are basically as developed. And so we do have a problem in our culture. Well, where does this come from? I think it, it has something to do with pleasing other people more than God. In college, my professor Mark Moore said something that I've never forgotten about a day of rest. He said, if you're trying, sorry, if you can't accomplish everything you need to do in 12 hours a day, six days a week, you're trying to please someone other than God. So workaholism essentially is rooted in a heart issue of trying to please people. And then I think another barrier is we don't know what to actually do. And so that's why I've offered clarity on what I recommend as the minimum that, that makes sense and is good and right for us to do. So I'm going to try and hit on all those. But first, let's go to the biblical text for a biblical theology of rest. And I think there's a strong biblical precedent for this, which Jesus did not abolish, but fulfilled in the new covenant. It was redefined by the early church, but became their new way of life. And so we should incorporate this practice. And it's a gift to be received, not a law to be scrutinized. So let's talk about the biblical precedent. You know, I mentioned that Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. I think we all know that. We're also perhaps a little uncomfortable with the fact that we virtually ignore it. Um, this is just based on my observations of Christians today. And I've had conversations where it's like, you know, well, well, what about the Sabbath? And it's like, oh, we don't have to do that one anymore. I mean, you're right in a sense, but why just arbitrarily pick that one? Is it because of convenience? Is it because we don't understand it? Is it because we don't have a proper understanding of the Old Covenant, New Covenant dynamic? And I think it's a, it's a whole mix of all these things. But I think it's really important that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And let me just say this, there's a big difference. And we need to understand that difference. He says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And in the law, which is shorthand for the first five books of the Old Testament, we're commanded to obey the Sabbath. Now we're commanded to do a lot of other things that we don't do and we should not do ritual practices and sacrifices. But we always have to ask why not and why yes. 
So, in other words, what does the fulfillment of the law and the prophets look like? That's the question. Not should we do them or not? Should we practice them or not? It's what is their fulfillment? And so our, our goal is to look at the heart of God. We're not looking for a new legalism. We're looking for God's heart in this. And so the first thing I want to do is go through a few key Old Testament passages, and then we're going to go to what I would call the penultimate text where Jesus deals with the Sabbath in Matthew chapter 12. So as we look at the Old Testament, we see that the Sabbath is both rooted in redemption, history, and creation. So starting in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15, we see that the Sabbath command is rooted originally in redemption of the people of God from Egypt. It says, God says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now this is interesting, and I want to pause here, because I think the phrasing here is key, and we sort of miss it. As we think about Sabbath, in the Old Testament, God says, keep the Sabbath holy, right? But that's not it. In verse 14, it says, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. That's an interesting phrase, because if this is the Lord here, and we have a Sabbath, there's an action, there's a, a movement, there's a direction of our Sabbath, and it's to God. So Sabbath, in one sense, you could think of it as being static. You just stop working. But the Christian Sabbath, the heart of the original Sabbath, and what's important to remember as we think about what it means for us today, is that it's toward the Lord. So in other words, holy means to set something apart, to make it different, but it's not just set it apart by itself, kind of just arbitrarily. It's set apart unto the Lord. And that difference is huge. Because a lot of people think that Sabbath is just not working. But we find something different in Scripture. It's not working and looking toward God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word for with in Greek, is actually closer to the word for two. We translate it with because it's the easiest way to say it in English. But Jesus, the Son, was with the Father in the beginning, but it wasn't just a stasis. It wasn't just a static sitting with. Jesus was toward the Father, John 1.1 says, in the beginning. He had a direction. He had a movement. He had a he had a focus. And I think that that's analogous to what we're talking about with regard to the Sabbath. So you could think of it like this, that there's a Sabbath that's static, which is just ceasing from work. And then there's a Sabbath that is toward God. Excuse my stick figures. And this is dynamic. And so we're looking toward God because Sabbath is not about us. It's not about a vacation. It's not about vegging. It's not about 
us. It's about God and God restores our Sabbath. Not we read a new self-help book and that's the end of the story. It's we seek God together with proven and reliable practices. That's what Sabbath is. Picking up in verse 15, it says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. One of the primary reasons for the Sabbath is just to remember. <laughs> Emma, my daughter, two-year-old daughter, has a book by Ellie Holcomb called Don't Forget to Remember. And it's actually, it's actually a Christian author. Don't forget to remember. It is so easy to forget to remember God. And that's why we have a specific day to remember our redemption. Now, we weren't redeemed from Egypt, but metaphorically in Christ, who came out of Egypt, you know, according to the Gospels, we have been redeemed from our sins and we should remember, we should take time, set aside time on Sundays to remember. We also see in Exodus chapter 16, verse 23 to 30, the very first time that we hear about the Sabbath. So this comes chronologically before Deuteronomy 5. And I'm, I'm just going to read a few verses from this because it says the same language of the towardness, the dynamic nature of the Sabbath. Starting in verse 23, it says, This is what the Lord commanded. Today is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Verse 25, Because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. And then in verse 28, it says, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. You know, so two times we see the same language of the Sabbath to the Lord. It's not unintentional. But the second thing I want you to notice is that the Sabbath is for us. It's a gift. It actually says that here in the Old Testament. You refuse to do this, but the Lord has given this to you. And he says that is why, in verse 29, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. The miraculous feeding of manna in the desert. God actually gave them double portion on Friday, so much so that they could take a day of rest. It was like super important that God was willing to do miracles to make it happen. And yet, remember the story? The people still went out on Saturday. And it didn't work. So, I think what happens is that, yeah, it's hard to obey. It's always been hard to obey, even from the beginning. You'd think it wouldn't be, right? It's a day of rest. But it also, as we do it, substantiates our trust with God. Think about how awesome it was to go out five days a week and get one portion of bread, or you know, one day's worth of bread for your family. You go out on the sixth day, and it's like, it's double. And it happens every week. You know, for how the decades that they were in the desert. That's unbelievable. Think about how that substantiated their trust with the Lord. Similarly, God can grow our faith by watching how your life will continue when you take a full day and do no work, no regular work. So it's rooted in redemption. It's a gift to us. 
And it's also rooted in creation. Exodus chapter 31, verses 14 to 17 says, Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Now, this gets kind of intense. It's important to know that originally the Sabbath was so important that it would incur the death penalty. This is not a minor tertiary commandment for the people of God in history. This is vitally important. And by the way, everyone in the household rested, even their animals. I think, I think that that's interesting. For six, verse 15, for the six days, work is to be done, but on the seventh day it's a rest holy to the Lord. Whoever does work on the Sabbath must be put to death. By the way, I'm really glad that we're no longer in the Old Covenant, because that's pretty intense. Verse 17, It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. So it's an everlasting covenant. I'm trying to find, yeah, verse 16, I skipped it. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generation for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. And then it says in verse 17, it will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. Now we're no longer, we're not the Israelites, but that shows how important it was to God, the permanence of this. And so keep these things in mind as we look at how Jesus fulfilled these commands. And while we no longer kill people for, for disobeying the Sabbath, neither should we throw it out entirely. And so that's sort of my argument is that it's rooted in redemption and creation, and it's not just for us. Uh, it's not just for the Israelites, but it's also for us as followers of Jesus. And I just find it funny. I guess this is strange humor, but I find it funny that we so easily dismiss the principle of the Sabbath when it's one of the Ten Commandments. We're all for do not kill, you know, do not commit adultery, do not swear, do not take the Lord's name in vain, all this stuff. And then it's like, but the Sabbath, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. It's like, really? Just throw it out. Do we want to be that cavalier with God's heart and God's word? I think it is worthy of our attention and worthy of our study to go deep to really understand it. Because I think that I think that people have abused it, right? If you look at the first century, what Jesus was combating, what the early Christians were combating was legalism. They went way too far. In fact, this book contains the rabbinical traditions. This was written around the year 200 AD, codified within the next 200 years by the year 400. And in it, you can read our best understanding of what the rabbinical traditions of Jesus' day would have been. It's called the Mishnah. And so we can look at how strict and intense they were, but here's what I want to say. They started out with the motive to follow God with their whole heart and with their whole soul and with all their strength. That was their original motive. But apart from Christ, that's impossible to do, essentially. So Jesus wasn't like, don't try at all. You just rest and then wait and we'll go to heaven one day. He's like, no, I still want you to love God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Right? He said that in Matthew 22. It's 
the heart of it that the people were missing. So we've kind of thrown it all out. We're like, well, if that's legalism and it's about doing these certain things, then we don't have to do any of it. But then we throw the heart of a day of rest out as well. And we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And so as we look into the New Testament, again, we're not looking for a new law to obey. We're looking for a heart to understand. So Jesus fulfills the Sabbath and shows us what it means to have a day of rest as his disciples. So if, if you look at the New Testament, in Greek, the word Sabbath is only mentioned 68 times. 56 of those are in the Gospels, and 20 of those are in Luke. And then Acts has the word only 10 times. We only have two occurrences of the word Sabbath in the rest of the New Testament, so all the letters. That's not very much. So that's why I think we need to start with where we hear about it the most, and we start with Jesus Christ. Um, because by looking at Jesus, I think we can really understand his heart. What did he say and what did he do? Matthew chapter 12 has both of them. He performs a miracle on the Sabbath, and he has a debate that's rooted in Scripture on the Sabbath with the Pharisees. So let's read Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Do, 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 do. Watch out. It's like the opening scene. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Didn't they know better? That's work. So the Pharisees call him out and they say, Look to Jesus. Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. I just love the fact that they happen to be in the corn or you know in the grain field that the disciples and Jesus were in. It's like, what do they pop out you know from a sheave of grain? It's like, where were you? It's like one of those scenes, you know, in Arrested Development, the TV show. You think it's just the main character and you pan out and the whole board of directors is sitting at the table. It's like, where did these people come from? Jesus answered. Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? It's a pretty sassy answer. Haven't you read? Not don't you know, but haven't you read? Of course they had read what David and his companions did when they were hungry. David entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Okay, let's pause there for a moment. Jesus, first of all, is going into controversial territory because he's letting his disciples do what some perceive to be unlawful. But technically, there was part of it that we know for sure was acceptable. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, it says that if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. In other words, if you're going through someone's grain field, you're not stealing if you take a little bit of grain and eat it. You know, I think that they, it's, it was probably like wheat. And so you could kind of run your hand up and then you've got all the grain in your hand. You just kind of, it's a little snack. It wasn't wrong to do that. But if you start like chopping it down, you know, it's like, okay, dude, you crossed the line. That's in the Old Testament. So the problem was not that they were eating someone else's grain. 
it was that they were doing it on the Sabbath. Now, it's not clear, based on the Old Testament, that that is a violation of the Sabbath. It's an interpretation. Because it's possible and likely that some Jewish leaders, like maybe the elders in a town or even the priests in a precinct, would have approved that that was okay. It was the Pharisees' oral tradition that said it was wrong. And so when they said, don't you know that this isn't lawful? They said, don't you know that this is what we think the law means for our lives? So let me read for you a little bit from the Mishnah so you can get a flavor for this. We actually have, in their tradition, the infraction that Jesus and his or Jesus' disciples were committing. It's in Shabbat 7-2. And they list 39 practices that are unlawful on the Sabbath. So 40 minus 1. It says, The generative categories of acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less 1. He who sows, plows, reaps. That's what they were doing. Binds sheaves, threshes, winnows, selects, Fit from unfit produce and crops, grinds, sifts, kneads, bakes, and they go on. They list them all out, but that's not just it. They get into the details of how, you're, how these things work out. So, um, for example, covering up food. This is going back a little bit. With what do they cover up food to keep it hot? And with what do they not cover it up? So they're now going into what you use to keep your food hot. It's an infraction if they uh, do not cover with peat, composite, salt, lime, or sand, whether wet or dry, or with straw, grapeskins, flockings, or grass when wet. But they do cover it up to keep it hot with them when they are dry. And they cover it up, you know, with cloth, produce, wings, you know, all these weird, it's like, dude, I don't even know what you're talking about. They legislated, according to their old tradition, if you wanted to receive an egg from somebody who came to your threshold, there was a certain way. If, if they had a, an egg in a bowl, they could cross the threshold with the egg in the bowl and you could take it, and that's not work. But if they put their hand over it, and then they took the bowl and the egg, that's an infraction. Or if you do it in the wrong order, these are the things in the Mishnah that help us understand the kinds of things that Jesus was dealing with. Okay, so here's what's interesting. If we go back to 1 Samuel 21, 1-6, which Jesus cited about David and Ahimelech, it gives us some interesting insight. And so, I want us to go there. Um, I'm going to sort of tell you this story because I think that this helps us understand Jesus' heart about it and how he fulfilled the Sabbath. So when you look at 1 Samuel 21, it says that David was, like in the context, it says that David was running from King Saul because Saul was trying to kill him. And he goes to Nog, where Ahimelech is the priest. The tabernacle had moved from Shiloh at this time. And David shows up basically fleeing for his life and he's hungry. And so he asks Ahimelech for some bread. 
So if you go to 1 Samuel 21, we get this story. David says, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission and your instructions. As for my men, I have told them to beat me at a certain place. Now, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Basically, I'm hungry. <laughs> so what do you got? And the priest said, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. So a little bit of background. Leviticus 24 verse 9 describes how this bread is to be set out every Sabbath. And it specifically said is, is it's to be eaten for Aaron and his sons. It's just for priests. So David comes in, and that's the bread that he receives from Ahimelech. Um, you know, and David's like, hey, we're holy, like, it's okay, especially on a day like today, which I think implies that it was the Sabbath. There's two reasons why I think it was the Sabbath that David walked into the temple. Number one, in verse 15, David says, how much more so today are we holy? We always, you know, keep ourselves from women on our missions and blah, 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 but especially today. I think it's because it was Sabbath. And then in verse 7, or verse 6, it also may imply that it was on the Sabbath because they would switch the bread out on that day. And the priest, it sort of implies by saying, it has been replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken. It's basically like, hey, there's some fre- you know, bread that we just talk- took off of there. You can eat that. It's like seven days old, but I mean, you can have that. And David's like, okay. So in 1 Samuel 21... I'm going, to, I'm going to title this Matthew 12 because Jesus cites three passages from the Old Testament. So in 1 Samuel 21, we get King David. And Jesus says, <clears throat> haven't you read about that? Don't you know your, haven't you done your studies? Don't you know the law? And that was okay with King David to be, he was, he was about to be king. He was anointed already. So, it's okay for my men. There's some interesting parallels. Grain picked on the Sabbath, bread on the Sabbath. Jesus' men, David's men. He was making himself an exception. It's not just arbitrary. David was a man under authority, and that's part of the reason, if not the sole reason, he was able to kind of tell the priest what to do. Saul's delegated authority in David's life was actualized. So I don't think Jesus is just saying, oh yeah, and you know that random example? I think this is getting to an, a messianic prophecy, a messianic fulfillment. I don't think it's just that, and we'll see that that's true as we move along. So if you go back to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus also cites Numbers chapter 28. So in Numbers chapter 28, it says, On the Sabbath day, make an offering of two lambs a year, uh, make an offering of two lambs a year old without defect, together with its drink offering and a grain offering of two tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil. This is a burnt offering for every Sabbath, in addition to the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Again, grain on the Sabbath. So 
Numbers 28 is something that Jesus cites, and he does it when he says the very next thing, after the example of David. Or haven't you read, this is verse 5, so Matthew 12, 5. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? In other words, he's citing, kind of indirectly, Numbers 28, which we just read, that says the priests were able to make these sacrifices, which was work, but they're declared innocent. So Jesus is basically tangoing with these Pharisees. He's like, oh, y'all are experts? Let's dance. And he's like, let's talk about 1 Samuel 21. Let's talk about Numbers 28. And by the way, haven't you guys memorized that? Jesus is basically saying. So these are priests. Okay? He's like, let's build a biblical theology of what the authority of the Sabbath is. And then he says, I tell you one greater than the temple is here. So in 1 Samuel, it was the tabernacle in, because the temple had not yet been built. In Numbers 28, we hear the regulations for the priests, which were fulfilled in the temple by Jesus' day. And then he goes further. Verse 7 of Matthew 12. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, meaning his 12 disciples. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Boom. Mic drop. (laughs) He keeps going, which we'll get to, but I want to pause here because he cites Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And he refers back to a previous challenge in, in Matthew where he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so he kind of comes back to that. And he says, if you had known what it means, you wouldn't have condemned these people. In other words, your exegesis, your tr- interpretation of the Old Testament doesn't work. You don't understand God's word, even though that's your primary goal in life. This is a hermeneutical challenge. This is an interpretation challenge. And essentially, what he says, I could say go learn what it means, and then you guys could go learn what it means, but let me just tell you what it means because I think it's helpful and important for our discussion. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire covenant faithfulness, not performative sacrifices. That's sort of an abbreviated version. The full verse of Hosea 6.6 would be like this, and this is my translation of it. I delight, God says, in covenant faithfulness, not ritual sacrifices. I want you to know me, not just to offer sacrifices to me. And Jesus cites that verse and says, look, you're missing the heart of it. You're missing the relationship here. You're all about checking the boxes and getting it perf- perfectly and flawlessly right. He's like, if you had understood covenant faithfulness, if you had understood my heart, then you wouldn't have been worried about this stuff. And so he goes on and he tells basically a parable to drive the point home. And this is really instructive for us. In Matthew 12, 11, he says, 
If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? He's like, look, people, let's talk about how life works. And we'll get back to that. But I want to I make sure we tie this up because I think this is really cool. And I just realized it yesterday that Jesus comes as the prophet, priest, and king. He says, oh, yeah, you know David? Yeah, I'm kind of like him. Oh, yeah, you know the priest? Yeah, I'm greater than the temple. Oh, yeah, you know Hosea the prophet? I'm employing his words to you right now. Jesus comes and in this passage declares his messianic arrival as the prophet, priest, and king, and they don't even know it. And he says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I have authority over this practice that you know is the Sabbath. Listen to me for how I define it and for how I rule over it. And this is fine what they've done. That's pretty powerful, but it gets better because of what happens next. He says to the Pharisees, you know, like if your sheep falls into a pit, how you get the the sheep out and save its life? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, my men were hungry and they needed food. You missed the heart of it, brothers. Now, this passage is really important to me because that very verse, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep, I was meditating on that verse about six, seven years ago on the day that I drove from Lexington, Kentucky to Paducah, Kentucky with my friend and my pastor at the time when I was in seminary, Billy Henderson. That morning, very morning, I was meditating on this, that verse in this context of a sheep falling into a pit. And we're driving down the highway, having picked up his father's tractor. You know, it was like a three or four hour drive. We drove the truck down there with the trailer bed. And we went and picked up this huge tractor. And it was not a good fit for our medium-sized trailer bed. So we were a little nervous about it, but we got it on there and we were going to take it back to Lexington so Billy could take care of his father in his old age and kind of get this off of his hands. So Billy and I pick it up, we're driving back and we get on the highway and we start talking. He's a pastor, right? It's easy to do. So he starts talking and he's, he's like a super competent person. And, um, but what happened was a big mistake. We got up to 60 miles an hour and the car started doing this. And it's like, oh no. And at first I was like, no big deal. Like you just kind of correct it, but I'm not used to hauling tons of weight on the back. And it was too late. Our car started doing more of this, our truck. And then Billy said, Chad, hold on, we're gonna crash. And I was like, really? I guess so. Again, I, I was hopeful. But I grabbed on, and sure enough, we started fishtailing like this across the two-lane highway, out of control. And he said, Jesus, save us. And sure enough, we went down into the median toward oncoming traffic. And by the grace of God, we somehow swerved back into the median and stopped to a screeching halt. And no one was injured. In fact, we didn't even topple over. 
And I know it was a miracle of God, number one, because Billy prayed, save us. Jesus. But number two, we looked at the damage of the trailer on the truck, and we know that at one point, this huge, unbalanced weight called the tractor on our trailer had done a complete jackknife and went 90 degrees because there was a huge imprint on the side of our truck that only came from that tractor. God saved us that day when we fell into a pit. That morning, I had been meditating on this very passage, and I said, praise God, (laughs) that man is more valuable than a sheep. And I'm able to tell that story about the miracle of God in my life. I mean, literally, I think that we could have died that day. But God cares for us. And that's the point of the Sabbath. When Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, I don't think he meant, so don't worry about it. Don't think about it. I think what he's saying is, learn from me what it means because I reign supreme over this discipline. I don't think he was redefining it to abolishment. I think he was restoring it and saying, look, the Sabbath is for you. In Mark chapter 2, the parallel to Matthew 12, Jesus adds something, or Mark adds something that's not recorded in Matthew. He says, for the man is not for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is for man. He's bringing us back to that forness. It's, it's a gift. And so Jesus reorient, reorients us to the purpose of the Sabbath. How? I think he does it. Again, this passage gets better and better by showing us. So if you keep reading in Matthew chapter 12, let's go back a little bit to verse 9, something I skipped. It says, going on from that place, Jesus went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. It's the same guys. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And that's when Jesus says, if, you ha- if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on a Sabbath. And he takes the parable of words and makes it a parable of action. And he turns to the man and he says, stretch out your hand. So the man stretched out his hand that had been shriveled and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other hand. A miracle had happened. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. <laughs> they were in it deep. They couldn't even see the Messiah in front of them. Who healed a person's shriveled hand? I mean, how thick do we have to be to really get it? But don't miss the point that Jesus was making. God wants to restore our souls and bring wholeness on the Sabbath. Sabbath is for the building up of people. You could think about the Sabbath as a reminder to be whole. Keep the Sabbath holy. In some sense, holiness is wholeness. The priests who had defects couldn't be priests because they weren't whole. They had more than they needed. The people who had a maimed limb, by the way, couldn't be priests because they weren't whole. Jesus 
is restoring the Sabbath by bringing and fulfilling its meaning for the people, but also on a deeper level, he's showing us what Sabbath means. He's saying, I want you to be whole. I want you to be restored on the Sabbath. And so as we think about this for our lives today, I think we need to remember that because there's certain things that take precedence over the Sabbath. And rigid rules can actually detract from the heart of the Sabbath. So let's say it's Sunday and you're trying to figure this Christian Sabbath thing out. You get a call. Someone needs help getting out of a ditch. What do you do? You say, no, I'm I'm resting today. I can't help. No, you go and help someone. You do that with an animal, right? Jesus was saying, how much more with people? You know how it works. That's what God wants to do with you. And here's what it looks like. Be healed. It's like, whoa. Lesson learned. Well, not for everybody that day. So the question for us is not whether to obey it or not. It's how to obey it and what does it look like. And so I'm going to just touch on a few other passages in the New Testament briefly, and then we'll talk about the how. And these are important because they qualify how we should think about the Sabbath. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you for what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. That's one of the two occurrences of the the word Sabbath in the New Testament letters. And the big point is, don't judge people about how they do it. Do not let anyone judge you for how you do this. Notice it doesn't say, so you shouldn't do it. There's just really persnickety, legalistic ways that they were doing it because they were first century Jews mixed with Gentiles and they were trying to figure out how to do this life. And, and Paul's like, hey, don't let anyone judge you if you don't do it the same way. The second one is in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. So it's Colossians 2, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. It's easy to remember. It says, on the first day of every week, Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have uh, will have to be made. The implication is they took up their offering on the first day of the week, which was Sunday for them. The word there is actually Sabbath, though, which is interesting in Greek. But we know from other passages in the New Testament, like Acts chapter 20, verse 7, that on the first day of the week they came together to break bread. It, the Sunday had become their new Sabbath. So they didn't call it Sabbath anymore because Sabbath means Saturday. <laughs> and it's because Jesus rose from the dead and, and was exalted to the right hand of the Father on Sunday. We also find in church tradition, just to kind of gloss over this quickly, <laughs> starting in 70 AD with the Didache. Then Ignatius of Antioch and Justin Martyr, Athanasius in the 4th century, and so on. We find that the Sabbath was no longer binding in the same way it was on the people of God. But they still encouraged people to gather together on Sunday. So, both in the New Testament, the early church, and in church history, we find no evidence that they said, don't worry about a day of rest anymore. 
They just redefined it. And so we've thrown out this concept and practice of a a 24-hour period of rest, but I think unnecessarily. So I'm not saying let's go back to Judaism because the Jewish Sabbath was a shadow that was fulfilled in Christ. Just like our modern shadows of rest are merely that. They get to the idea, but they're not really the idea. Jesus shows us what it's like. But I don't think it's separate from the original heart of God. I think it's just an interpretation of it. And so, you know, the last thing I want to say as convincing you to do this is that it's a gift to be received, not a law to scrutinize. And so it's good for us. Here's how it makes us whole. And so I want to motivate you with this. We're tired. (laughs) We need rest. It's not a virtue to be tired all the time, to be worn out and stressed out. That's not a virtue. We need to relax. We actually need it. God's worked it into the fabric of how he wants us to live our lives. We're also suffering, I think, in our day and age from spiritual malnutrition. And we need sustenance. How are we going to get it? How are we going to dig deep without time set aside for that? We're isolated and we need to connect. There's so many people who come to church and say, I I have a hard time getting plugged in. It's like, well, what practices have you made to prioritize the people of God? We're untrained in the word and we need to be regularly trained by talking about the word with people. When are you going to do that if you're so busy and you're always working? If you always got somewhere to go? We're not used to praying with others and And a day of rest offers us an opportunity and time to regularly pray with others. We're so focused on doing, but a day of rest helps us focus on being. The Sabbath gives us peace, rest, fellowship, extended time in the Word and prayer, and time for those deep devotional readings you want to do. These are the things you've always wanted. And it builds into our lives time and space to go deep with God. That's what the day of rest is about. So don't worry about the legalism part. We're so far from being legalistic about the Sabbath, which is amazing because it was just within the last hundred years that there were laws around. I mean, there's still like one law about alcohol, but it used to be really strict. We're so far from that in just such a short time. It's unbelievable. So, you know, I'm not super worried about people being legalistic about it. I think now we understand a little bit of the background. And I'm not saying go to the other side. I'm just saying, let's embrace the reality of a day of rest and let's incorporate it into our rhythm of life. And so what do we actually do on this day? Like I mentioned, I did a survey of the book of Acts just to get an idea for the kinds of things Jesus did and the earliest Christians would have known as a context. And these three things, I think, are not inherently Jewish. They gathered together, they prayed together, and they read the Word of God together and talked about it. So I thought, let's not reinvent the wheel here. Let's take the legalism out of it and look at the heart of it, and those things are totally New Testament practices. So what I want to encourage you to do is reframe your mind about what the Sabbath is. It is not just a day off. It's a Sabbath 
unto God. And what that looks like practically is gathering with God's people intentionally, regularly, and for a lengthy period of time. And the things you do together are really simple. You pray and talk about the Word together. Now what's interesting is, I think that Sunday morning services get us there, but not fully. There's more to it than just Sunday service. So if Sabbath is also for you, well, I go to church and that's fine and that's that. That's not a full day of rest and restoration. That's called checking the box. It could actually be a new legalism for you. I fulfilled my duty to God because I attended. It's like, well, did you grow in the word? Did you talk about God? Did you pray to God? Did you hear other people's prayers? Did you really gather together or did you sit in the pew? Gathering together, these are really intangible things, right? So when we look at the heart of what God has for us, then it changes us. I think there's some, I'm going to get more into that, but I think there's some specific barriers we run into. I want to talk about a few vocational barriers, and then we'll get into some of the details. I think ministry people have a challenge of learning how to take a day of rest because Sunday in their minds is a work day. Now, I can empathize with this. I preach every so often here at the church, and I've preached, you know, more often. When I was in college, I preached virtually every other week in my senior year. And there's the temptation to say, well, that's everyone else's day of rest, but for me, it's a work day. I want to challenge that. Not saying that that it shouldn't take effort, but I wonder if there's a way for us who are in ministry, again, I'm a volunteer, but for those who are in full-time paid ministry, I want to encourage you to maybe challenge that mentality that Sunday should be a day of work for you. What does that teach? How will people learn to rest on Sunday if you're working? That's sort of my first question. Number two, are you sure that it should be exhausting and feel like work when you preach, teach, or lead? That doesn't have to be work. I think that we can perhaps seek the Lord and ask him to show us what it means to rest on Sunday so that we can show others what it looks like, but more importantly, so that we don't go insane. So I think that's something to work out. I'm not saying it has to be that way. I think it's a very complicated sort of scenario, but I just want to put that out there. When I preach at Harpeth, I wake up early. I go till what, like noon, but it's my day of rest. I'm not saying I've figured it all out, but it's still a day of rest for me. I don't, I leave church energized after I've preached. Not every time. <laughs> so I'm learning, but I just want to say for the ministry folks, it's possible to rest on Sunday. And maybe we need to restructure things so that it is that for you, so that together we can be unified. I'm just going to put that out there. I think there's some other exceptions where it's complicated, right? So ministry, it's complicated to figure this out. But again, it involves gathering together. So your Sabbath day of rest as a Christian is not just your day off. I think that can still be restful for you. And as you figure out how to navigate this, I think that, that there's tons of grace and space to figure that out. But it's complicated. Another 
another sort of group of industries is public service people, nurses, doctors, EMT workers, firefighters. You literally have to work. It's part of the job. It's your career. Well, how do you do this? Find, here's what I want to say to you when, when you're obligated to those things and that's your career. Find a way to gather with people, pray with people, and talk about the word when you do have a day where you're free. Or ask your boss to let you come to church on Sundays. Another industry where you can negotiate, and I'm not saying you can negotiate in those, I'm saying maybe you can. Maybe you can. Don't just dismiss it. The restaurant industry. When I worked at Carrabba's Italian Grill in Green Hills for a year, three months, and seven days, no one was counting, I had to do my time, but I did make sure to permanently request Sundays off. I probably wasn't missing a whole lot of tips that day, according to statistics, but I did get Sundays off, and I had to fight for it because I had decided that this was a spiritual practice I wanted to incorporate in my life. So what I'm saying to you is, if you believe your job dictates that you cannot do this, who are you serving, God or man? Get creative, number one, and then fight for it, number two, and then get more creative, number three. Let's, let's really try and honor God this way without being, you know, ardent, you know, like legalistic about it, okay? But let's fight for it. One industry that I haven't figured out is dairy farmers. They have to milk those cows twice a day. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that one. So there's mystery to it, but the good news is there's grace and space. So what do we actually do on this day? I think number one, we make specific plans for a day of rest. So that's one of your worksheets for this week is uh, it's a simple worksheet and exercise that helps you plan out your day of rest and what you'll actually do. And I encourage you to make it Sunday as much as you can, even for those of us in ministry. And I advocate for a 24-hour period because it's not just that Jesus, the New Testament writers, and the earlier church did it, but I think it also is inherently more restful when you have contiguous hours. Can I use that word? Continuous? Whatever it is. Because some people will be like, well, I do four hours here, and you know, I try and get a little break. And it's like, that's called resting for the day. I'm talking about a full day of rest. I believe God's heart about that stands because it's rooted in redemption and creation. Plus, practically speaking, if we're all doing our own thing, then we can't gather together. It just makes logical sense that we all do it on the same day that Jesus was resurrected and exalted. Put it down on paper and describe what you're going to do. Prepare for the day of rest, too, by saying no. You might need to prepare other people. Let people know what you've decided. Your boss, your clients. I don't work on Sundays. Your family, so that they can respect your decision. In other words, be gracious and prepare them for it. Here's where you've got to dance a little bit. Don't put your convictions on them, but it's okay to state your convictions. And judgment can go both ways. If you're more um, disciplined about it, don't let them judge you for being disciplined, Colossians 2.16. But also don't judge them. It goes both ways. Prepare your family. I suggest that families make these decisions together at a minimum. Hopefully, obviously, as a church we can. But at a minimum, decide with your spouse or with your family. Uh, perhaps your small group if you're not married. 
for me and Rachel, my wife, this means that we have all of our food prepared beforehand. That's why you need to sync up and make the decision together because you're doing these things together to get ready for it. We have all of our chores done, all the dishes washed, all the laundry put away. Again, this is an ideal world. We give grace to each other when we're not perfect. Anything that's not done for us by sundown Saturday, uh, fr uh, Saturday can wait until sundown Sunday. I'll tell you what, this has been one of the most beautiful life-giving practices we've done as a family, and we look forward to it every week. We're like, but Sunday's coming. Kind of brings a whole new meaning to that phrase. And we do. We remember and are energized by the resurrection on that day. And then set boundaries for yourself. For me, it's really clear. No email, no computer, no client calls, and so on. I almost never violate that. There are times where I have because of the heart of the Sabbath. And it's fun to be free in Christ that way. But it's also good to have clear boundaries for yourself. And then, so it's saying, it's also saying no to activities that pro prohibit you from resting. I think there's value in not doing physical exercise on the Sabbath. You know, the Jews talked about you can't walk more than 2,500, you know, cubits and stuff like that. You know, we can get legalistic about it, but there's a sense in which traveling far takes its toll and it's not restful or exercising. So think about those things and what they look like for you. And then say yes. So we say no to things, but we also say yes to connecting with God through prayer, His Word, and His people. So make plans with people. Don't just do it on your own. Don't just come to Sunday. Find ways to gather with people outside the Sunday service so that you can do those things. It is totally possible, and it's so much fun to do. This is an adventure that we get to look forward to every week. The cool thing, too, is it actually helps us work harder and more efficiently during the week. If you know that you're limited, and you're not going to be able to do stuff on Sunday because you've decided that for yourself, that you'll get stuff done at different times. You also realize, I'm not a superhuman. <laughs> Again, going back to that thing, why do we work so much? This also helps us check our hearts. Why are we doing certain things, and what can we cut? It also us, enables us to rest in the sovereignty of God and new creation and remind us that we're not human doings, but human beings created anew by God. And we can cultivate those relationships with people that we want to. We have time. We can go and, and learn long-form disciplines like reading lengthy portions of Scripture, praying for a long time. And what's cool is that it restores our soul and bleeds into the rest of the week. I find that that the rest sort of carries me into the early part of the week and I, I know how to do it and it impacts me as a whole. So I'm going to come back to that story that I started with about Doug Marks. My freshman year of college, he had us all break up into different groups and he said, how do you know that someone has been formed? How do you know that they've been discipled? And almost everybody said, you know, when you're helping other people, when you're multiplying disciples, when you're investing in other people. And I remember what he said that day. It changed, changed the way I, I saw spiritual formation. He said, that's not it. It's rest. It's rest. There's a place beyond multiplication. There's a place beyond disciple making in a strict sense. There's a place beyond doing called rest. 
and really mature people know how to do the former and they excel at the latter. A very mature person not only makes disciples and multiplies, and by the way, I'm on that journey figuring it out. I'm not arrived. But as we grow in Christ, we not just learn how to do and make, but we learn how to rest. And that's a sign of maturity too. In fact, I agree with Doug Marks that it is the capstone of our work, just like it was for God. On the seventh day, he rested. So as you think about this spiritual discipline, think of it like this. It's a gift to be enjoyed, not a law to be scrutinized. So my goal for you today is is to help you receive that gift, embrace it, and allow God to restore your soul as you restore rest in your life. So that's all we have today. It's time to finish. Um, I wanted to just remind you of the two exercises for this week, the 21-day challenge. It starts today. Don't overanalyze it. Just do it. Jump in. Don't have to do it perfectly. And then the rest worksheet. Next week, we'll talk about study. So thank you, guys. We'll see you next week.